WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA, the official podcast of the WMQ Comics website. I'm your host, Dan Grote. This week we're talking about Sean Lewis, the writer of Image Comics Thumbs with artist Hayden Sherman. Talk about that series as well as his previous comics, Saints, The Few, Betrothed, etc., one of which he drops a WMQ exclusive on. Uh, beyond comics, we also talk about Sean's extensive work in theater and film and how he makes time for all of it. Plus, we learn Sean's favorite X Men comic, and it's a good one. Uh, speaking of X-Men, I should mention, for more podcasty goodness, last week I was a guest on site contributor Charlie Davis's The Young Ones podcast, talking House of X and Powers of Ten with friends of the show Zach Jenkins, Adam Reck, and Chris Edelman. So definitely check that out if X-Men are your thing. Meanwhile, what's going on over at WMQComics.com? Plenty. Uh, we got our top picks of the week up, uh, led off by Marvel's Absolute Carnage. Uh, we got our X-Man of the Week, which is uh, Rasputin 4 from Powers of 10, number 1. Joshua Bermont's got a review up of Dark Horse's Manor Black, number 1. Uh, Will Nevin's going to have a review of the new Ice Cream Man. And uh, Matt Laswitz is going to have the second installment of his This Month in Gotham feature. And uh, I hear tell there also may be a new pod people on the way very soon. So you can check all of that out over at WMQComics.com. But for now, here are me and Matt and Sean. Uh, so, Sean, what are some of the first comics you remember reading when you first got into the medium? Like when I was a kid? Uh, yeah, or, or, you know, whatever, you know, ones you have sort of the fondest memories of. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I was a huge, huge X-Men fan, um, you know, during the, like, never-ending Chris Claremont run. Sure. And um, I really, really, I liked the West Coast Avengers a lot at that period, you know. Basically, anything that was on the spinner rack, like, we didn't have a comic book shop in my town, so it was whatever the local, like, drugstore had on their racks, I was just, like, demanding, begging my mom to buy me every time we were in the store. Um, and then a little bit later, I had an uncle who um, moved in with me and my parents at a certain point, and he had all the old Vertigo books, like a lot of the early Sandman. Um, Transmet, before it before it actually moved over to Vertigo, when it was on like the sci-fi line at DC. Um, and Black Orchid, I was really obsessed with Black Orchid. Um, yeah, I mean, those were the things that, like, I think that was, like, the gradual growth um, was X-Men into that. I mean, I never really left X-Men until, like, probably midway through high school. I kind of s- stopped reading comic books for a stretch. And then I had a friend after college who gave me a copy of Essex County by Jeff Lemire. And um, and I got obsessed again. I just was like, oh, this is, this is amazing. Why have I not been reading these things? <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, you know, I, I love when when the spinner rack is is part of people's sort of comics origin stories because there is there's there's a mystique to that to, to that wire frame for some reason. I, you know, and maybe it's the sign at the top that's just yelling at you, "Hey, kids, comics!" <laughs> right, right. I forgot about that part of it with those giant signs with Batman and Spider Man dancing across them. But yeah, I mean, I. I I mean, I grew up in a really small town in upstate New York, so it was, like, the main entertainment because we didn't even have cable. Like, it was back in the days when, like, certain streets didn't have enough houses for, like, cable to go up to them. So I had friends who had, like, HBO and ESPN, and I was just like, yeah, we've got, like, PBS and CBS. And, <laughs> like, and, but I'm reading comics, but I'm not a complete lost soul. Like, I've got these things over here. Um. You, you mentioned, you know, Vertigo kind of being a formative part of your reading, uh, you know, uh, any sort of, you know, DC announced just a few weeks ago now that they were kind of phasing out 
the vertical line at the end of year end of the year. Uh, you know, any sort of moments of of you know, does it feel bittersweet for you? You know, it's kind of weird. I mean, I feel pretty removed from what Vertigo, you know, everything goes through incarnations. Sure. And so, like, um, I, I've just, I've been pretty removed because I haven't read a lot of Vertigo titles in a long time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was, I, I feel bad in a way because, like, I know Mark Doyle a little bit. and He's a, he's a very talented editor. And I think he was starting to do some really interesting stuff over there um, that I, that he's not going to be able to see through. But, I mean, I also know he's talented, so he's going to end up somewhere else. I just think like it's, I mean, partially because of the movies, it's such a boom right now for, for work that there's a lot of great work coming out. You know, I mean, I was always a, I was always an image obsessed kid as well when I was younger. Like I still remember when when that first like announcement happened that like these guys had left and were starting a company. So like, I mean, I read a lot of image books. Um, I'm really fascinated by what Vault's doing. Um, I mean. There's this nostalgic part of me that that's kind of like, oh, you know, it does kind of suck that that uh, Vertigo is going away. But I also like my background is so theater based, like nothing lasts in theater. Like theaters close <laughs> all, the, you know, like theaters we, close all the time. Like the play <laughs> ends and like no one has any memory of it. So there is a part of me that's like, yeah, things kind of are ephemeral. They kind of disappear. We will get to the theater later, as you and I have a similar background in that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, without going into too many details, due to a, a family issue, the the theater I worked at, family issue of one of the actors, the theater I worked at had to just cancel the extension week of the play that we have been running, that was about seventy five percent full. Uh... So the past two days have been complete and utter madness especially as a bunch of us are away at a conference right and i feel for you because i also don't know how many listeners if they're not in theater realize that like 75 percent full means like oh this financially can cover a lot of ground of either shows that did not make what they were supposed to or whatever we have coming up like it, it has it can have huge ramifications for like months and years ahead Yes, it can, and especially it was a. I mean, it was a a big hit, and I mean, it was we extended, and I've never been, never thought I would be grateful to say, well, it turned out the New York Times couldn't come in that last week, but now I can say I'm kind of glad the New York Times couldn't come right. that last week. Yeah, yeah, getting a great review from them and then having to close would be pretty demoralizing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I'm sorry to hear that. It it it, uh, it it was it's bad, and I feel a cad to be talking about it while it was due to a personal emergency for one of the actors. Like, yeah, you know, oh boy, it really sucks that we had to close the show. Yeah, it really sucks more for the person who had the horrible thing happen to them. And right. I have to kind of, I always feel like when I've talked to people about it since it happened, I have to be like, and. I'm not a jerk, and I'm not making this about me or about the theater because it was really much worse for the the person personally involved in this. But it just it sucks. There's no. No, of course. Of course, the- theater's fucking hard. Amen. <laughs> it is really hard. <laughs> so uh, we are we are here to talk about a little bit about uh, Thumbs, your current image series with uh, artist Hayden Sherman. 
Yeah. Uh, for people who are not familiar with it, and the book is, I believe it's going on its third issue, uh, what is what is sort of the elevator pitch for, for those who may not know? Sure. Well, I mean, for people who haven't heard about it, where where are you? Where are you? <laughs> what are you doing? Um, no, I kid, sort of. I sort of kid. Um, basically, I had some fantasies about, like, what would happen if Mark Zuckerberg started to use um, his app technology to build an army of kids to try and overthrow the United States government. Um, that would be the elevator pitch. That's the one that people <laughs> seem to perk up at. Um, and then, you know, in terms of my own interest in writing, it, it uh, the complications just keep abounding. Um, wh- who the good guys are and who the bad guys are keeps kind of flipping on you as this young boy, Charlie, whose nickname is Thumbs because of his ability with uh, video games and applications and his use of his, of his thumb on these screens. Um is trying to figure out after, uh, I guess, like, spoiler, after a, a long absence, an injury that has kept him kind of debilitated and unconscious for a long period of time, kind of wakes up and kind of, like, 28 days later is kind of trying to catch up with a world that has moved way, way ahead of him. Um, so he starts looking for his sister in this kind of embattled world and tries to reconnect with friends who have changed astronomically. Um I kind of was thinking a lot about like how quickly the speed of technology changes and what is that going to mean for the development of people and their relationships. So that if you did turn off um, for months or years and then tried to turn on again, um, how far behind you would be, but also what kind of perspective would you have from not being in it? Kind of from like, you know, like I'm not on Facebook. I used to be on it and I've been off and like, my mom's always yelling at me about like you gotta go on Facebook and see what your cousins are doing, which is you know of course what people would want to use Facebook <laughs> for, it's like what their cousins are up to. Um, but it is one of those things where I'm like every time I tune into a new app, like I, I downloaded Instagram a few months ago before the book because I was I had friends who were like you gotta use it to market and even just getting caught up on an app, I'm I'm like wow there's like such a learning curve to this, but also there's such an addiction once I learn it. Like I'm sort of like oh I know all the phrases and this and that, and I try and show it to my wife and. She's where I was, you know, six months ago, which feels like a millennium ago. Um, so, yeah. And Hayden's art is unbelievable. I will say that for anybody who hasn't picked up the book, like, even if you don't read the words, like, Hayden's art is amazing. Um, and, and I think, like, kind of worth the price of admission. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And we're going to talk about Hayden in a little bit. Um, you know, things start out kind of. You know, you mentioned that there is that gap while while Charlie is incapacitated, but things start out pretty advanced. Like, to your mind, how far in the future are we away from this being, you know, a, a potentiality? <laughs> I guess it matters how pessimistic you are. Um, <laughs> like, if you're really cynical, it could be like maybe two years. Um, I don't know. I feel like, you know, there, Hollywood gives us all these phrases that'll be like 15 minutes in the future, half hour in the future. I don't know what that means. Um, I guess it's as far in the future as you could imagine an app that could take care of your kids or a school. I mean, the one that's more close to us is like Amazon's looking at starting schools and, or getting involved in some educational um, programming with wherever they start their next headquarters. You know, so any place that has the idea of a headquarter being run by a tech conglomerate, you know, is kind of in line with where this book is going. I mean, um, obviously the technology is very advanced. Like there's, there's walls with screens that speak and talk on them, but I also grew up watching the Jetsons and I'm living in it now. So it's, it's hard for me to tell, like, 
you know, like we're on Skype right now, and I'm like, Skype was I first saw Skype on the Jetsons when I was like eight. So it's it's kind of hard to tell with technology anymore. Like how far away is anything? The the original purpose of Skype was for Mr. Spacely to tell uh, George Jetson he was fired. <laughs> uh, you know, talking about pessimism, I mean, there is an eerily natural progression both of sort of the big tech and the anti tech. Uh, sides of things in this book and and you know it certainly has plenty to say about both and and like you said it kind of varies on who's who can who's the good guy at any given moment uh, or who's on what side you know we joke occasionally on this show uh, about people who say they don't like politics and comics but you know you you can't deny that we live in a time uh, where dystopian futures kind of multiply like rabbits right right absolutely I mean I mean, dystopian is always attractive because it's just like, what would you do in a survival situation, which which can reach across like political lines. Like my my brother, who's like hardcore NRA, you know, um, as red as it gets, you know, card member, which I have nothing against, but it's it's you know not my personal point of view. Um, you know, we both really like Walking Dead. He likes the survival aspect of it in different ways than I like the survival aspect. Like he likes watching Daryl and going like, ah, oh, I see how he's tracking. And I wonder how they will cauterize that wound. Where I get really fascinated with like, how are they going to figure out how to make a society like a hierarchical society? Um, I mean, I think I think the gray areas. Um, in thumbs are very much like the gray areas in a lot of the things that I've written, which I think sometimes can be frustrating for audience members, but I, I guess for me, it's like I am very terrified by um, by team behavior, meaning like I I kind of have a team and a side that I blindly follow, whether it's whether it's Democrat or Republican or liberal or conservative. Like I just, I automatically assume that I agree with everything that this side says that I should agree with is kind of terrifying to me and very, um, I think it just causes a lot of problems. I think there's a lot of nuance in everything and I don't know that we're usually good at nuance. Um, and I think technology is making it harder. You know, I think like, like one of the things that's like the, like one of the most terrifying and anxiety ridden things in my life are the three dots that show up when someone's <laughs> typing something. Uh-huh. It makes me scared. Like I'm just like, oh what is this person gonna say? I mean that makes me anxiety ridden and it also like the quickness at which things happen and people tech I guess what it is is right, like if someone texts me, I feel like I have to text them back right away or else they they think I'm ignoring them and I'm a bad person and I have an issue with them. And also if I text somebody as much as I don't like being on the clock, if I text somebody and they don't text me back, I start immediately projecting like What's wrong with me? Did I make them mad? Like, what are, what's going on here? And I think the danger in that is, like, the immediacy of response and knowing that people have received the information makes us think we have to make decisions and come up with fully formed thoughts before we are actually ready to. I always joke, my wife has a habit of leaving her cell phone around the house wherever she was and then walking away from it and <laughs> when I, I i'm going out and it's like hun i'm gonna go to the grocery store and i'm gonna pick something up and do you need anything oh yeah can you just text me when you get there to tell me what brands as my wife is a, a chef and so has very particular tastes in brands and i'll text her and 
I anticipate her to respond immediately. And when she doesn't, <laughs> and it's been like 10 minutes, I'm suddenly very paranoid. I mean, is she, did she fall down? Did somebody break into the house? And then I get home after picking <laughs> what I think is the right brand. She's like, oh, yeah, I went upstairs and Bess, our cat, crawled up onto my lap when I sat down in the bed. And so I just decided to sit there with her. It's like, but, but I, I was going to text you and I hope I picked out the right food. And I, re, and I then I sit back and I'm like, wait. Even when we met 13 years ago, I would not have responded that way to her not immediately texting me back. It's become this digital crutch. Absolutely. No, you and, you and me have the same problem. I immediately think of car accidents. I mean, some of the most, the worst fights or like the stupidest arguments my wife and I have gotten into have been around one of us not responding in time to a text. Like about something innocuous and going like, I texted you twice. I thought you were dead. And it's like, that's insane behavior. <laughs> we didn't have cell phones for oh. two-thirds of, uh, of my life at least. And it's now it's like I've, I was like, how did I live without it? It's like, oh, wait, I think I might have been happier when I didn't have this damn thing. Well, it's, I guess that's what I mean. Is like it's, kind of, it's super fascinating to me how quickly we – kind of um, become part of the technology, right? That like an app comes out and people will get obsessed with it. And it's like, I, I, I mean, I just think of people who are like, I need to, I have friends, some who work in theater, who are kind of like on a clock of like, how many times a day do I need to tweet? And I need to check my tweets. And did I get retweeted? And if I got retweeted, I got to do this with it. Like where Twitter is like, really like not even just a part of their routine but is a part of them like they're almost directly connected to it in, in terms of their need and i'm just like these are people who i'm like you weren't even on twitter like 18 months ago <laughs> like like how how is it now this necessity like water um i think that's the stuff with technology i mean at the same time it's like i'm not speaking to you guys about technology right like i don't have a comic book theater or or entertainment career without email like it's just not possible for what i do and where i've decided to live my life the past like 15 years for me to be able to do all the things i'm doing without without email you know without skype without base camp without being able to like do all those things so i'm like i I'm, i feel very very multi like very torn on it where i'm like oh i i believe in technology because it's what basically funds and helps my life and career go forward and yet, I can't help but see these these behaviors of mine that sometimes feel less than human because of this screen. You know, the, the, these needs that I'm like, this isn't really a human need. This is kind of partially my narcissism, partially my paranoia, and my anxiety, like all festering together. Uh, yeah, I admit I'm a hypocrite. My my job title is director of IT and data insight. So yeah, if, if there were technology. <laughs> I, I don't know what I'd be doing, but yeah, I still being, I think part of it being as deeply entrenched in as I am makes me sort of realize and accept the hypocrisy of not wanting it, but needing it. Sure. I mean, I, I, I think everyone, I think everyone's wrestling with that, you know, more than we even actually talk about is just like, you know, I, I have an uncle who, um, 
he got really mad when Facebook did an update recently and he was just like, I'm signing off. I'm quitting. I'm quitting Facebook. I'm going to let them know that like, I don't like their business practice. And I was just like, you don't get it, man. And he was like, what do you mean? I'm like, you're not a customer. You are the product. And he just kind of looked at me and I'm like, you don't pay for anything. Like they already have your data, like everything they needed from you, they have like, so you can get as mad at their, their thing is just to collect new forms of data. Like, that's why they're changing their interface. And it's, you know, and I, I think it's okay if you understand those things and want to play within those realms. But I, I sometimes re- think about, like, how often we don't realize that that's what's happening. That we think these things are being created for us. And they're entertaining and they play to something within our psyche that we need. But they're not, but they're not for us. In that, they're not in an altruistic sense for us. Mm-hmm. Sorry, this is getting like so heavy. I feel yeah, I know. I, it's good. I apologize for all of your listeners that we've lost at this point. <laughs> no, it, you're not the first guy we've had this kind of discussion with. You That's probably a... won't be the last either. Um, <laughs> but we'll, we'll, we'll get into the fun stuff again, folks. We swear. Actually, yeah, here. But fun stuff. Um, yeah, let's talk about Hayden Sherman uh, a little bit here yeah. because he is he's a, he's an amazing artist. He's a busy dude. You know, he just did uh, Mary Shelley Monster Hunter for Aftershock. I'm pretty sure Christopher Sabella is just sort of waiting for his plate to clear to work with him again on something. Uh, how did you luck out in uh, in getting Hayden? Oh well, I mean, um, Hayden's first big book was The Few, which me and him did together as a, a co-created project when he was still at RISD at uh, Rhode Island School of Design. Mm-hmm. So basically. Um, I was doing this book called Saints with Ben Mackey at Image was my first book and I got really obsessive. I had a bunch of ideas and I talked to, I did not understand how comic books worked. I went to Eric Stevenson at Image and I was like, Hey man, got a new idea for a book. Let's set me up with an artist. And he was like, no, 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 no. Like you set yourself up with an artist. And I was like, well, that's how this goes. And so um, I was trying to figure out how you do that. And I was on Facebook. This is when I was still on it. And um, again, like how like the, the hypocrisy of this. Um, Boom Studios, Boom Comics had um, like an artist submission page that was just like, had just like what feels like billions of like thumb sketches and portfolios just posted right into the page. And I just spent like a weekend scrolling through all of those images and I found Hayden's. And immediately was like, I gotta write a book for this guy. I've never seen anything like this. This is fucking amazing. And I, in the same weekend, I found all this art by a woman named Caitlin Yarsky, who I did coyotes with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, in both of those cases, I was just like that weekend I left. And I was I just basically wrote first issues that didn't exist for books I wanted to do, and emailed them to both of them, going like, I think this fits your style perfectly. I fell in love with it. You did. Hayden was in school was just like I'll get back to you between classes <laughs> um, like that whole experience of the few is nuts because he hadn't graduated yet um, so I was constantly like bothering him for like things about the flattening or like color stuff that had to go through the printers um, as he was like taking finals it, it was really really nuts I was also incredibly jealous because I was just like this kid's fucking like 21 years old and he's living out my lifelong dream that I'm just like finally stumbling into. Um, so yeah, we worked on that. We had a great time working on the few. We both loved that book. And, um, as soon as it ended, we started working on thumbs. It's just that thumbs size is so big that it's taken mm. us. 
between thumbs of size being really big and with image you need to have basically like three full issues done before anything can get a true green light like you're you're let known earlier like we we will do this once you have the issues but you have to have them physically done like top to bottom before you can even get the solicit so it just kind of threw the made the timeline longer than it probably was like we've, we've just been working on this since the few I, I, I kind of I, I love that about Image because, you know, if you think about it, the company was founded by, you know, a bunch of amazing artists who also were notoriously bad at staying on schedule. <laughs> well, I think that's definitively that without question, that's a huge part of why this move happened. And just like a ton of. Yeah, because the delays just kill a book and then kill a company. Absolutely. And Eric's, Eric Stevenson's, I mean, fucking brilliant. Like, I, I love that. I mean, Image is such a home for me, and I, he's been amazing um, the whole time. And it's it, it also is kind of good because like the delay in that also allowed me and Hayden to go back and like do revisions without the pressure of like we're coming out next month. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like we had three done. So as Hayden was working on four, I was like, you know what? I haven't looked at the first three issues in like a long time. Like. I should go back and just like track through and make sure that I'm a hundred percent with this. And it just allows, it kind of allows me and Hayden to do like a real tight editing on both the art and the language that I, you know, I just don't think you, you can get when you have a deadline right on top of you. Hayden's layouts for this book <laughs> are fascinating. The pages vary from, tons of small panels to these massive widescreen two-page spreads are you working full script or are you kind of going marvel method and just letting him build it as he does and you sort of work with that you know we found on the few it's not even really like marvel it's even kind of more open than that we we discuss it a lot before we start Basically, what I do is I go away. My, so my background is in playwriting. My, so my master's is in playwriting and, and with a lot of study in fiction writing. So I'll go away and I basically write like um, kind of like a novella of the whole series. And I turn that over to Hayden. And he starts creating thumbnails solely from the novella. And we just we know right from the get go we're like we know this is going to be a massive book that every issue it was the same with the few like every issue is going to be about fifty pages, um, and so like he'll go away from like these short stories these chapters that I've written and he'll start creating thumbnails he'll send me the thumbnails and then we'll talk about the thumbnails throw in possibilities like okay on this page let's go for a double page on this one like what happens if it's like oh, we need a lot more text so if it's a bunch of smaller panels, um, but it is a lot of freedom you know like. When I found when when I found Hayden's work and and especially on the few the thing that kept getting me is I was just like his paneling more than anything I don't think he gets enough credit for the for the the, the for what his, the energy and life in terms of his sequentials like I think his paneling is is really underrated like his style is is awesome because it's so definitively Hayden like I think when you pick up a book that he's drawing at this point if you've read one of his books you're like oh this must be Hayden Sherman. Um, but I think his paneling and the storytelling in that is really awesome. So it's it's kind of like a I would say an even more open than Marvel approach that we take to the book. Uh, Spot Kohler obviously plays a big role in Thumbs, and you know it can even be hypnotic. You know we're talking about those double 
page spreads and I'm thinking about, you know, when we're in the halls of Fortress Victory and there's these just giant uh, magenta screens all over, you know, or, you know, when you're in the sewer with all the, the, the VR junkies, um, you know, what made you guys decide to go that route and, you know, what does that specific color represent to you? Well, I mean, that was very much hate. And right at the beginning when we started working on it, he, like, hopped on the phone and he was like, you know, I'm thinking the few had a really muted color palette. And I liked that about it. Um, I'm, I, like, really like old black and white comics a lot. Um, I get mad a lot of times that editors won't let me just do black and white comics. Um, I got There's great colors. I don't mean it as any shot on colors. I just There's something I really like about that, about that style a lot of the time. And... He reached out to me and he was just like, you know, I, I think we had already agreed that we were going to do it more muted. And he was like, what if there's just like a big pop of color for anything that's connected to the technology? And I was like, that sounds pretty brilliant. Let's do it. Um, and then, you know, because it was so muted, the, the, natu- the natural kind of inclination for him was to go to that, that popping magenta that really, to really like juxtapose the, um, the kind of, the, the reality they're living in and the, the kind of virtual world they're aspiring to, um, which I think was a great choice but it also gives the the whole book like such a definitive look and feel so while i was doing research for the podcast i discovered saints which was your first series for image or yeah. one of your first the first and, and i wish i had discovered it earlier since i two weeks back wrote a piece about comics and irreverent takes on religion um, <laughs> yeah, to tie in with the release of uh, Second Coming. Oh, from, gotcha. Yeah, um, and it's a story of patron saints reincarnated on Earth fighting the fallen archangel Michael and a cult, his cult. Uh, where did that come from? And <laughs> do you have a religious background? I mean, was your family religious? Was that the kind yeah. of thing or is it just something that's fascinated you yeah no i'm i'm uh i'm first generation irish catholic i went to catholic school um so like i grew up heavily with it in my house um my grandmother still watches mass she's 95 years old she still watches mass every single day um my mom whenever i get off the phone with her which is about once a week um even though she knows that she doesn't like the answer she asked me if i had gone to church or prayed that week um, I also was like obsessed with preacher, <laughs> you know, when I, when I got back into comics, somebody handed that to me after Essex County and I was just like, Whoa, very different than Essex County. What the fuck is this? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and yeah, I just, I was always really, I mean, um, I found comic books at the same time that I was very, you know, it's interesting. I, I got into X-Men. I hadn't really thought about this as an influence, but I was I really got into X-Men right around the same time that I was like probably at my height of being involved with the church like doing being an altar boy going to catholic school really devoutly doing like rosary on a almost daily basis like there were, there was points in my life where I was really heavily um committed to religion and I still have a very big um push pull with it um you know like I I I want a spiritual life, but I also have a lot of problems with organized religion and specifically Catholicism a lot of the time. Um, so saints, and also, so when saints came together, um, Ben and I, Ben had taught himself how to draw a lot from um, older religious paintings and styles. 
and we would get talking about stuff and we fell on this idea I was just really obsessed I really loved that was like what would happen if a bunch of atheists kind of got imbued with powers that were derived from patron saints like patron saints for anyone who doesn't know like they're all killed in like horrible ways like it's always like a king wanted to sleep with her and she said no so he ripped out her tongue and so we were like okay well what would happen if if like the second coming of that saint like her tongue is like it, it, it's like elongated and it can wrap around people or like her eyes like in our book like saint lucy like her eyes were taken from her by a guy that by again like a king that wanted to sleep with her and so like she has kind of like a daredevil-esque vision um saint blaze is known for being able to heal throats and was you know um burned and so like his he's able to both like open and close throats and create like burning sensations and so it was just kind of taking like that those kind of obsessions with those stories like there's such a great myth within them and just thinking like oh what if they were kind of like the x-men like um battling and that that book was just like a fucking ball to write because it was also like um i hadn't worked in comics i did not expect anyone to ever hire me again so there was kind of a like i guess we're just gonna leave it all on the table (laughs) which it was just a very go for broke kind of book which um made it like just super super fun to work on and it was also a good lesson because i feel like i've approached the it it was successful enough that it was like oh maybe that'll work (laughs) so something kind of approaching the books in in similar ways um, this might be going back a couple of weeks. I, you know, I was doing my uh, usual sort of guest uh, research, which always includes some light Twitter stalking. But uh, did I did I see you teasing a, a sequel series uh, the other day? Yes, yes. Well, I mean, fuck it. We might as well say it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, I would say half of a graph, uh, half to a little more than half of the next Saints graphic novel is written. Um, I was actually talking with Ben today about it, sending him pages. He's already started to do designs. And yeah, I'm, yeah we both miss it. We both really want to do another one. Um, and it's also been a weird book. People who liked that book like still email me like fervently looking for if we're going to do another one. Um, so yeah, we, we are planning on having another Saints hopefully by like early uh, 2020. Like I think we'll probably do a Kickstarter We've never done Kickstarter, so it terrifies me. It's very scary to me, but I think we'll do something like that or Patreon to to kind of pre-fund the book. But it is it will be coming. Yes. That is rad. Yeah. And um, you guys get the scoop. I don't think we've actually said it officially to anybody yet. So Yes. Uh, Woo! Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <Love> an exclusive. <laughs> uh, so thumbs as well as betrothed, which was another well, of your books, this one from Aftershock. Uh, have teen casts. I mean, they're a little older now in Thumbs, but even some of them are still teens. Um, you've said you were a reader of X-Men, but you, did you also read books like New Mutants and New Teen Titans that had those teen leads? Or is there something else that makes that age group good protagonists for comics or in general? Um, I mean, I think it depends on the story for sure. I mean, even Saints has like at times a younger, like Lucy's pretty young in it. And even though Blaze is older, he behaves like a teenager. Um, you know, I was in the, in the X-Men, I was really obsessed with Colossus and Kitty Pride when they were having their relationship together, which is when Kitty was like a teenager and Colossus was like a little bit older than her, like 19. Like those are like my favorite era of, uh, of books is when they were going back and forth from being a couple to not being a couple um i was in a new mutants um 
I, I read that. I read them a lot. I read. I liked the Teen Titans a lot. I mean, I think a lot of us grew up with with those. I loved Kid Flash. You know, like when you're that young, you just want somebody you can relate to. It's, I mean, going back to the theater thing, it's something I kind of say. I, I used to say to our board, and they would ask why certain plays were being chosen or why certain plays didn't succeed. And I was just like, well, people like to see themselves on stage. You know, so when you do a certain play, if you don't market to them correctly or they know that it's them on stage, they don't come. Um, Preach on. And so... <laughs> so I mean I think that you know with technology I mean the big thing with Thumbs is like the reason why there was team protagonists in in Thumbs is that I, I got really heavily we had been working on it and right before he got deep into the art there was the Parkland shootings and I remember and I got really obsessed and influenced what I mean by having that delay right like we had some of the art but like we were still figuring that things out so we had that time before we had to turn everything into Eric and the Parkland shootings happened and I was just watching these kids giving these speeches afterwards and I got really frustrated. I went to Twitter and I, I saw like a family member of mine who was like, you know, I was really upset about the world and I watched, I watched these brave kids from Parkland and I just know they're going to save us. And it, the thing was like, I was really moved by the, the speeches too. I thought the, those kids were amazingly brave, but I also got instantly insanely angry at the concept of these kids being the ones who had to save us like the idea of like adults just being like well fuck it I guess it's up to you guys like you guys know how to use Twitter better so like I, I that kind of played into like our protagonists have to be so definitively they just reinforced it and pushed made me push even further with that of like how do how in a techno, technological age right where like the kids are growing up with it and are better at it than their parents like how quickly those kids are weaponized and politicized and what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Like these are being forced to be, I mean, as much as people go on about this, like comics aren't political, like kids on teenagers on Twitter, like are politi- are politically active, engaged and angry in a way that I know that a lot of people get excited and happy about. But there's a part of me that I'm like, I don't want you to have to be like, I want you to be able to, fucking go to school and figure out what you actually think and believe without having to like be a full-on um activist for whatever you believe in at the point when you're 15 i mean fuck i wasn't (laughs) you know and i and i'm you know i feel like i'm a pretty at least politically curious person i mean so that was a big one on that with betrothed honestly i'd come off doing a couple of big like serious books and I was like, I want to do something that's just kind of fun. I'd been reading some Archie comics, and I was just like, well, I want to do, like, Archie in space. Like, I just I just want a break. I, I know this is a shorter series. I kind of know what Aftershock are looking for. Like, we talked about, like, wh- wh- what our goals for the book were. And I was just like, I, I need to get, I just on the Saints and the Few and, and Coyotes. And at that point, you know, you're dealing with, like, religion. Do I believe in God? Does a God exist? And what happens if there isn't? The Few, like... What happens if my country turns on me and no one believes? And like the questions of like, why do we believe in anything? And then Coyotes, which was definitively about like women miss and like the destruction of toxic masculinity. And I was just like, I just want some people at a pool party and like a friend who falls in the pool. Like that's all I want to do in this book. And somebody might shoot the laser. Um, so so like in terms agonist for those, I was just like. I, with the, the, the friends and the lasers and all of that if these guys are, are teenaged more than if I try and pull it off in a different way. Um, 
you know, we, we, we've talked about your theater background uh, a little bit. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll kind of straddling these two worlds, you know, for one, I'll assume you don't sleep. But, you know, <laughs> are you are you working in these two media, you know, usually simultaneously or do you kind of rotate from, you know, theater to comics? You know, how do you kind of block out your time to, to work on, on everything you're working on? Uh, it's pretty nonstop and it's pretty overlapped. I mean, so like a good example would be like my May, my May until now. So that's been what, three months? So May started off, I had a film that was, I had a, uh, a film TV project that was at the Tribeca Film Festival. So I went to Tribeca, then we had Thumbs come out, then I went to the Berkshires in Massachusetts and directed a play for Summerstock. I'm now back starting to develop a new like multimedia theater piece and getting in like comic book pitches and starting to put together a short film. So it's always kind of like, it's always a bunch of things that, it's always on top of each other. It's all at the same time, basically. Um, I think as an artist, you kind of, at least for me, I haven't found a way to make a reasonable income without doing things all on top of each other, you know, like, because it's like, oh, the comics make a little bit of money and the short film stuff makes a little, well, that makes like nothing. That just costs shit. Um, the theater stuff makes money. Um, and then like, the theater stuff I, is is the most busy because I'm, I'm, I, I made most of my career as a solo performer. I now also direct and my background's in playwriting. So it's always like I'm, I'm writing a play, I'm touring a solo show, I'm heading out here to direct a play. Um, and now I've added like kind of the film and TV stuff on top of it while, as well as the comic books. I mean, the, the thing is though, is it's, uh, it's all pretty enjoyable. Like it's all pretty, it's all pretty fun. I mean, I think the best advice I ever got about it was from like Neil's, it was from like Neil Gaiman on Twitter. Like the most true thing I, it felt like the truest thing I ever read is he was just like, he's like, whenever I've done stuff that I didn't think anyone was going to give me any money for, those have been my biggest successes. And whenever I've done stuff to make money from it, they cost me the most. And I think in juggling all of those things, that's been the most real. Every single time I think I'm doing a project that's going to break the bank open and make, make life easy. It's like the biggest fucking pain in the ass and it does nothing. And every single time I'm like, no one's ever going to want to watch or read this. Um, those are the ones that it's like, holy shit, people are, like, are really engaged with this. Like, I can't believe it. Uh, which is fucking annoying, to be honest. <laughs> um, I wish I could just predict it. I'm not a chill enough person to just go like, ah. I got a good friend who's an actor who I do, I do a lot of producing with. And um, he's he's great partner because he's very um, – glass is half full and he'll just be like people will show up it'll be fine we love it we're good at this and i'm always just like fuck you like no one's gonna come we're gonna die penniless and poor like what am i gonna do about my kid yeah oh, i've ruined everything um and usually in some somewhere in the middle <laughs> um so so yeah i just i just kind of like the juggling is partially just like i i love it and i've been doing it that way for such a long time now that it, it just feels like my life um, but it's also like the financial reality of like if I if I want to make a reasonable living doing reason and reasonable is like such a debatable thing. Like if I if I want to be able to pay for my kids' daycare, like like these this is just kind of the way I have to do things. How how does comics does or does comics kind of scratch your your need to create or your itch to create differently from from theater or film or you know, is it all kind of part of the same, you know, animal? 
Oh, no, it's it totally, all three of them are wildly different from each other. I think it's also why I do them. I mean, I think that's a great question because I think like, if I'm really honest about it, there's something, there's very different things that each of them do for me. You know, like comics, like it's just such pure imagination and it's so childish, like um, in the best of ways. Like I can let my brain go to the silliest, most ridiculous, most um, absurd, most fantastical places and and do it and also it's really selfish because like still one of the best experiences i have on a regular basis is receiving the art like writing a script and then sending it out and then getting like the art back from an artist is like it's a holiday it's always a holiday because it's just like holy shit this is this is a real thing this is so much cooler than i ever imagined it when i was writing it um and it's it really plays into that kind of um that that kind of itch where like with theater i mean a huge reason why i still do some of it because a lot some of the aspects i do don't pay very well at all and i still do it and half the time while i'm doing it, i'm like what the fuck am i doing this for um but it still scratches for me the community aspect of it like there's a great community in a rehearsal room like with actors and designers and it's still pretty fun and awesome for me to be with an audience um sometimes more than the actual work itself like like i'm more excited about comic books that are coming out now than a lot of plays i've read um and then film i just grew up obsessed with movies like just so obsessed that it's still like it's just still such a magic trick the assembly line magic trick of it is still super cool to me of like oh this thing does not fucking work at all and then i add like a little bit of sound and i cut two seconds off of it and i like there's the little like engineer scientist part of my brain that i think likes film where it's just like sitting in post is the best part for me where i'm just like uh, it's like figuring figuring out the puzzle of it of like if i add this and take away this suddenly a scene that is un- completely unwatchable becomes the best scene in the entire project um so yeah they definitely are feeding different parts of the brain no because my background is also theatrical, um, I kind of went down that rabbit hole a little when doing my research, and I saw that you won a bunch of pretty prestigious theater awards, but one of them jumped out at me specifically because a play you wrote um, at Interact, uh, City of Numbers, a.k.a. Philadelphia, won a Barrymore, which yeah, for those of you did. who don't know... The Barrymores are the Tonys of the Philadelphia theater scene, and the people in the Philadelphia theater scene take them very, very seriously. They do. They do. It's a good theater. Philadelphia is also a great theater town for for anybody who's curious about a a career in in theater. I work in what qualifies as Philadelphia Regional Theater, despite not actually being in the city, um, which is why the Barrymores jumped out at me. what was that? What was that play, and what was that whole experience like when it, with the Barrymores and the whole nine yards there? Sure. Well, um, so the play itself is so when I graduated, I, I went to grad school for playwriting uh, at the University of Iowa. So I, I, I then was in residence at Interact, and while I was there, there wasn't a lot of money for me, and I got offered an opportunity to go work at Greaterford Prison. Uh, which is now closed. It was a maximum security prison um, about like 45 minutes outside of Philadelphia. And the big thing about that prison is like, there's, there's this huge, sorry, I'm trying to find a efficient way to say, to talk about this. Um, 
if you ever go to Philadelphia, there's like 3,000 stunning murals throughout the entire city, like the whole side of a building. They're, they're amazing and gorgeous, and they're all over like south and downtown and Germantown. Um, like a th- I think like a third to half of those are painted by men serving life, pr- life sentences at Greaterford Prison for murder. So I got brought into Greaterford to teach some like playwriting and acting workshops, and I met a bunch of the lifers who were involved with the Mural Arts Painting Project. So over the course of a year, roughly, I was doing interviews with those men, and I took those interviews and then interviews with family members of their victims, as well as police officers and politicians, and I made this one-man um, docudrama, like uh, basically oral history type play called Philadelphia that I just performed myself. And then I basically I toured that show for about five years across the United States and overseas. Um, the Barrymore's I actually wasn't at. Um, <laughs> I was about to. I was about to perform. I was going on stage at Cape May Stage in New Jersey um, wow. when when the Barrymore Awards. Basically, the Barrymore Awards had started when I went on stage. When I came off stage, I found out that we had won, um, and then I got on a bus. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I got on a bus from Cape May to go back to New York City, and I think I got a flight back to Iowa, or I went to another tour. I might have been going to another tour date right after. I can't remember. Because um, that, was, that was a while ago. That was like, oh, man, that was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, I think <laughs> you um, Yeah. Yeah, the theater stuff's been amazing. I've gotten to do a lot of incredible things I never really um, imagined doing. I mean, I think it's also one of the reasons why, I like, when people talk about doing the arts is really scary. You know, it, as a career, because it, it, it always feels like your current project's your last project, possibly your last project, um, and by no choice of your own. Um, I have found if you kind of are are kind of truthful with yourself and what you want, and you and you're willing to break some rules is the wrong word. I mean, I've had a very atypical career. Like I've just I've never lived in New York, Los Angeles, or Chicago, and yet I've had like a really vibrant um, theater career. And and I, I think that it's actually been helpful that I haven't been. That's not true for everybody, but I think it's a good thing for people to know. Of like, I think people get very caught up with comics, film, or theater of going like, I just I'm not in the right place to start. And I think sometimes not being in the right place to start is like the best place because there, if there's anybody else there who's even mildly interested or talented in what you're doing, if you're good, they you will cling to each other and figure out how to come up together because you're, you're like the only people around. Um, that is one of the tangents you said it should be okay to go on. Oh, yeah. Actually, you know, it, it, it does cut nicely actually with what I was going to ask next because, you know, kind of looking at your, your social media presence, I think you have a very sort of motivational presence. You know, you're, you're actively telling people, you know, pretty much what you just said, you know, get, go out there, make stuff, take the, take the chances, etc. You know, do you feel like that's kind of the big thing that you want people to take away from interacting, you know, both with you and with your work? I mean, whether they take that from you or not, or from the work, I, I mean, I don't know, I guess. Sorry. I think, you know, like I am actually like prop. I'm, I'm fighting hard to not in my life be a glass half empty person, and that's been a struggle my whole life. Um, I believe in people, and I always have, and that's been kind of a saving grace. Like I find people really fascinating and surprising, and they can be really magical. Um, that that's kind of been something I've held on to, but I also think that 
um, the thing I see in people a lot is that I think a lot of people are, I feel like I know a lot of people who are struggling in different ways that like deep down, there's a level of unhappiness or a level of like, I wish I could do this other thing or I have dreams. I think the, the, the absence of pursuit of dream, whatever that dream is, is, is something that a lot of people suffer from and is really difficult. And I think there's not a lot of avenues to talk about it without sounding ridiculous to yourself or foolish. Um, so, I mean, Twitter, I don't fucking understand Twitter, right? Like, Twitter's very confusing. I mean, I understand how to, how to type things in that. But the general, the general, I know so many people, so many friends of mine who will, like, text me in the morning and go, like, I just, I'm so angry. I've been looking at Twitter. And I'm just, like, I refuse to live my life where I get mad looking at a machine. Like, I just, I, I, I'm not going to do it. And so I guess in terms of my posts on Twitter, I'm often just like, ah, this has been turned into like some kind of rage machine. I also know there's a lot of people, especially since the comic books, and I know other people from theater who like follow me or students who I do guest workshops with, right, who I know follow me and will message stuff on that. And I know there's a lot of times where they're probably like how I've been a lot of times in my life sitting at home. Like for me, it was like sitting at home in Iowa going like, man, I just want to make a play that people will see. And I just want to be like, I just want to make a living creating art. And I just want to do these things that seem impossible. And that sometimes people just need to hear like, you can, you, you can't, it's really fucking hard, but you can do it. Um, so I think like that's often how I approach the approach Twitter rather than just being like, I'm really mad at like something Joe Russo didn't say on the Tonight Show, like you know, like stupid shit. I'm just like, I can't, I can't have this be my day. Um, so yeah, I think, I think I do lean probably almost too saccharinely on um, on that. But I also think part of it is like, I don't know, Irish Catholic kid. I grew up in a house with a bunch of people who were either in the military or social services. The idea of being a writer was just like naughty. It was like I might as well have said I was going to be an astronaut. Like it just, it was, it's taken me so long with each of the things I've done to have the bravery to take a big enough shot to really come close to my dreams, like to really submit a comic to image, you know, or to do those things that I'm like, if, if it seemed like more of a reality or I thought people who were not untouchable were doing it years ago, would I have felt more brave and could I have done it earlier and saved myself some like pain? And I'm like, I think probably so I'm just kind of like, I don't know, there might be a dude out there or, or, or a dudette or a female or whoever out there who's just like, I, I wish that I could believe I could do this. And it's like, well, maybe, maybe a small message here or there actually helps him. That's nice. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump pretty far back to the beginning of this conversation real quick. Um, follow-up question I never had to ask, but, you know, you talked about sort of starting your, your comics fandom with X-Men. Uh, I'm just wondering, uh, you know, the, the Claremont era obviously uh, is is about, you know, 15, 17 years worth of comics. Is there, like, one story <laughs> in particular, you know, that you can lean on, like, uh, you know, this is this this is the one, you know, like, this is this is sort of my uh, my X-Men story? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the issue wrong, but when I describe it, readers will, or listeners will know what I'm talking about. I think mm-hmm. it's X-Men, I think it's 173. It's a, it's a, it's a single shot, which I, I so miss in comic books. Like they had just ended a couple of arcs and it is basically, um, Kitty Pride's heart has been broken by Colossus, by Peter. Mm-hmm. And Wolverine's like, let's go get a beer. Oh, uh, yes. 
Yeah. <laughs> and so Wolverine, Wolverine takes him to a bar. I mean, you guys know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wolverine, Wolverine takes him to a bar. And in Wolverine's head, like, before they get to the bar, he's like, I'm going to basically beat the shit out of Peter and teach him that he can't, like, treat Kitty this way. They get to the bar, and Peter's, like, completely racked with guilt. And he's just like, I didn't want these things to happen. I'm very sorry. I love Kitty, but I, I don't love Kitty enough to be with her. And it just happens that Juggernaut is is at the bar also like out of costume and he like spills some beer like bill beer gets spilled colossus and juggernaut start to argue wolverine recognizes who it is colossus doesn't colossus and juggernaut get into a fight colossus is just getting his ass kicked and wolverine's just like well the kid's kind of getting what he deserves (laughs) Uh, and it is by far an issue that has stayed with me I haven't even read it in an incredibly long time, and yet the synopsis in my head, I'm like, oh, I still basically know panels. Um, I think that that issue, there was something so human and recognizable about it, of like, of the two of them just going out to have a conversation, Peter having, like, done something stupid to break this girl's heart. Colossus, for whatever reason, it made me such a, a weirdo, but, like, Colossus was always my favorite character. Um and yeah and then but it also still had this like superhero action i just you know like that i loved when they went to australia mm-hmm. i mean that's that's years later um i mean there's different stretches of it where like it's one of those books where like i, I read consistently whenever i could find get an issue of it for years but there was definitely arcs of it that i loved way more than others you know like where i was just like oh this is when i'm i'm 100 percent in on this like the, the marauders like i loved all of that like but i that issue specifically is the one that jumps out at me always where i'm like that's probably my favorite issue of x-men um yeah that's a good one uh what are you reading now oh man what do i have in front of me i have like volume two of gideon falls uh, I haven't read Middle West, but I, I have the trade in front of me. I'm going to probably start reading that tonight. Um, I'm trying to think. What about Black Hammer? I'm really obsessed. I, re- I mean, I like Jeff Lemire a lot. I, mess- I'm, I mentioned Essex County. I've already mentioned two of his other books. I might as well be his publicist. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think. I've been starting to read a lot of catching up on superhero stuff that I haven't read in a long time. Like, I've been going back and reading. I just read um, Bendis' Sinister Six with Miles Morales. Um which I really dug. I thought that it was really, there was a lot of fun stuff in that. Um, I'm trying to think of other things that I've been I've been reading pretty ferociously through things. So I'm just trying to think of like what are the things that have. Oh, I read a Dark Horse in, um, graphic novel that was like the Green River Killings recently. That was fucking phenomenal. It was great. Um, so a lot of that I read a lot of fiction still. I read a lot of books. Um, but comic book wise, those have been the things that I think have been jumping out at me the most um, that's a place where twitter's been great of just getting recommendations of, of seeing what people are like super super excited about reading and there's certain authors who i still get really obsessed with following um like i'll read a brian k vaughn book basically whenever it comes out um yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's always a harder question when people ask i'm like i feel like there's things that i read that i know as soon as i as soon as we hang up, I'm gonna be like, "Wait, I read that's like I've read these like three things that were fucking incredible, and I didn't think of any of them." Um, to be yeah. fair, a lot of t- a lot of times when we ask creators this question, it's like, "Oh man, I got this pile of stuff I haven't read yet, but uh, all right, let's see what's in here." So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm I'm always kind of flipping through and looking. I'm always looking for new things. I'm also always going back. Like, just there's so many older comics that I 
I haven't read that that I I kind of get into, and I'm like, fuck, I never knew how good. Like reading old like Justice Leagues when like Keith Githen was writing it, and I'm like, where the fuck was I? This is fantastic. Um, yeah, it's just like that's the nice thing is it's just like there's such an endless like wellspring. I think it's also just an interesting moment. There's just so many interesting and good books coming out that it's. I find it impossible to keep up. Like I find it really, really hard. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely, you know, with the number of publishers and the, and the different sort of, the 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 spread of of, you know, genres and everything. It's it's definitely, you know, it's 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 a kind of a, a golden age of plurality in comics, which is a good thing. Right. No, absolutely. And it's just kind of interesting seeing, like, um, as some of the smaller publishers are, are, like, kind of solidifying more of what their brand is. Like, I feel like I have a very good understanding at this point of, like, what a vault book is going to be, like, the level of quality and style of the books. So, like, and, and that's kind of fascinating. But I'm also, like, like, I took this other book out of the library today that I'm really excited to read because it just looks fucking insane called The Case of the Missing Men from Conundrum Press. It's just like this black and white comic that is kind of like Nancy Drew, but like all these men go disappearing in like a Nancy Drew world. So, so yeah, that's that's kind of where like my, my, my interests are going like all over the place with these things. Awesome. Have you done the, uh, the convention circuit at all? Not as much as I should. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I should... I, um, you know, the first convention I ever went to was New York Comic Con when Saints came out, and it kind of freaked me out. Um, it was just a that's lot. A, that's a pretty sh- big uh, show to start with. Yeah. Bad, I, I think it was a bad idea on my part because it kind of threw me off. Where I was like, I don't, I can't do, I can't do this on a regular basis. I think I actually had a conversation with Phil Hester at some point when we were doing a signing in Iowa, and he was like, "Dude, they're not the same convention." Like. <laughs> Like if you go to like the if you go up to like the Cedar Rapids Comic Con, it's not going to feel like New York Comic Con. Um, and so I started going to some of those other ones. I mean, I'll be back at New York. Um, you know, with with the schedules of doing the like the like I wanted to go to San Diego this year, but we we literally were opening right in the same week. Um, so sometimes it's just a matter of trying to figure out those schedules as well as having like a young son at home and going like, how when can I be away without it ruining your life? Um, so I'm, I'm hoping to. I'm hoping in the next year to start actually hitting up a lot more uh, of them, like Emerald City and, and Rose. There's there's a bunch of them that I would love to. I'd love to experience because it's great to see fans, and it's also great to see like. I will say that the comic community is awesome. Like even on Twitter, I'm just like the amount of love and positivity that people in comics seem to show each other. I'm like. I don't know. Maybe I knew the wrong people in theater. Like theater is positive in some ways and in other ways I'm like, not at all. (laughs) So I I just have been like, wow, people are just so outwardly supportive and seem like, I don't know if they're all hiding resentment or jealousies of each other, but no one seems to behave that way. Like I can reach out to basically any, like most comic creators on Twitter and ask them advice on something, whether it's a publisher they've dealt with or an issue with whatever. And, and people are amazing to get back right away and, and be resourceful and helpful to one another, which is, which can be rare in other, other businesses for sure. I mean, I can tell you those, those dark sections of comics Twitter exist, but I am very glad that you have not stumbled (laughs) upon them yet. (laughs) Again, I'm, I'm pretty bad at Twitter. I also don't seek anything out. So it might just be like, I think like I, I, like I file, I follow Brian Edward Hill who, who probably is like, 
twice as positive as I am. So I'm just like, wow, everyone on Twitter is so happy. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Awesome. Uh, yeah, so as, as Sean, as we're wrapping up, how can people follow you online if you in fact wish to be followed? Yeah, no, I love having followers. It's, it's fun interacting with people. Um, on Twitter, I'm at Sean Chris Lewis. And then on Instagram, it's at Sean Lewis 6026. Awesome. Sean, thank you so much for doing the show. Yeah, thank you guys. I appreciate it. That's it for this week's show. As always, you can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at WMQComics.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A and WMQComics.com at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where just a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, the ability to promote your work on our site, and a customized bonus reading column written by our own Matt Lazowitz built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. Big thanks to our first and foremost patron, Steve Morris from Shelf Dust and the MNT. You can follow WMQ Comics on Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote and Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013. Not a fan of social media? Sign up for our weekly Q newsletter, which gives you the best of WMQ every week in your inbox. Uh, finally, and most importantly, check out WMQComics.com for all your comics news, previews, reviews, interviews, and plain old views, and we'll see you next time. W-N-Q-A. W-N-Q-A.